Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association based at Wits University, Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast engages with issues about university life relevant to students and staff looking in South Africa, Africa and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular area. My name is Nosipum Gomezulu. And I'm Kolega Shangi. And, and we are your hosts. Hi, I am Kukumoyo. A student at UNISA and I think what causes mental illness or depression amongst academics is due to their huge workload. Between lecturing, constantly doing research, and keeping up to date with developments in different fields can't be easy. No wonder some get so depressed. Welcome to this week's episode of The Academic Citizen. Today I am talking to Elvis Munadzwa, currently registered for a PhD in psychology. His research interests are in health psychology with a particular focus on gender and health, health disparities and affordable health care, sexual and reproductive health rights. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a bit more about what it is that you do? What is health psychology and how does it relate to gender and health? So basically, uh, health psychology is where we look at uh, the perceptions of illness and the health. It, what it, does it mean to be healthy? And if it's, you're not healthy, what's, what's stopping you from reaching optimal health? Is it your health behaviors? Is it your inclinations towards certain health-seeking behavior, practices and behaviors? Is it something that we can help position you mentally to be able to maybe exercise or, I mean, full health? In short, maybe we should just think about it this way. Uh, uh, what we know about health is what we know about health through illness. So what we're trying to do is to, to, to avoid illness at all costs and just focus on the health aspects minus illness. Mm. And if you think of it, how does it involve gender or how is it related to gender? Or, or what we know about health is gendered. Okay. Yeah, so we know that there's, there's in common parlance people talk about men don't seek health, help quickly, and then they die quickly, right? So it's gendered, right? So we have these perceptions that women are more affectionate towards healthcare seeking practices mm. and men are hostile. But we also know that in the same instance, men are more likely to visit the emergency room more than women. Mm-hmm. So now our perceptions of, of health in itself is gender. So we're likely to say women are healthier or women exercise healthier health practices than men. So now what we know about health in itself has become gender. That's very interesting. So now bringing it to our topic today, we're looking at mental health and academics or mental health in the academy. What does that mean? What is mental health? Mental health is probably one of the most forgotten topics in academia. Not necessarily that it's forgotten, but it's something that's not prioritized. It's like we assume that by being in an academic space, you are fit to be there. And by fit, your, your capacity to engage is beyond your health. In, in which case, we have forgotten aspects such as the ability to hold it down. And holding by holding it down, I mean the absence of mental disorders. So for instance, duress, like extreme pressure, would lead you into extreme anxiety. And anxiety sometimes would lead you to having panic attacks. So you can't deal with this stuff. 
then you panic. When you have a panic attack, sometimes it's worse than that. It triggers depression. So you go for long periods of time, completely stressed, and it builds into depression. So if you think of it now in the academy, mental health is probably one of the most brutal but silent conditions that people encounter. Why is that? So, for instance, being in a university, maybe let me tie it down a little. So, if you're an undergrad, there's a lot of support structures. You have uh, the first year experience team that comes to you and tells you about, oh, if you're not coping, they'll CCD you, or you can go to empty engineering center for counseling and whatnot, right? And then the assumption is that you grow with it in your years at university, right? But the challenge is, it's there's so much at university. Uh, that you stop thinking about, you know, centers of care. Your academic pressure is intense. Your financial pressure is intense. But more so, the standards that are set for you to achieve. So getting a pass at university is good, but not good enough. Getting a B is good, but not good enough. So your stress levels are always at an all-time high. And if you think of it that way, then as you go higher, like you finish your third year, then the pressures to succeed are high. You need to pass, you need to graduate. After graduate, you need to get a job or you need to come back to university. But you also need to secure funding and your family pressure at home, you have other things going on around. And then eventually when you come back to start your postgraduate degree, like you have so many things going on. And when you have so many things going on, that delivery on all things is important. But the time is limited for you to deliver on everything. So you, you're in survival mode most of the time. And then mostly because we follow our passions, then we have that passion burnout. The work is intense, your delivery rate is not so good, the pressure for you from your superiors for you to submit the work that they need is also intense, right? And then it gets worse. Then you get to post, like maybe PhD or you get to become a junior lecturer. The tone set by your predecessors is intense. People have achieved doctorates in record time. People have published articles in peer-reviewed journals. They've published in peer-reviewed journals with high ratings, right? And you write an article and it gets rejected. You don't have a support structure where you can then go back to and you know what? That I'm struggling here. Because one, the supervisor is waiting for the amount of work that you should put up. Mm-hmm. And the amount of work that you should put up isn't just work, it's work of a certain quality. And then that quality doesn't come as easy as passing an exam. And then because then you have to match a certain standard. So you have to like read through so many scripts to write one perfect script. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is this, not funny in the fact sense funny how it's funny that you write your near perfect script, send it to an editor, and then it gets rejected. And then the comments come and like two, three pages of red ink that say, maybe you're not good enough. Mm-hmm. So now you're trying to balance off, are you good enough for that journal? Are mm. you good enough for the supervisor? Are you good enough to be doing a PhD? And then because of that pressure, sometimes people buckle out of that pressure. Mm-hmm. When you buckle out of that pressure, then mental illness just kind of follows you. Mm. So you're depressed, you want to stay afloat, you try to find antidepressants. Mm. Some people go through grievous moments where it becomes traumatic, mm. so they suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Some suffer from complete anxiety. And I'm sure you're familiar with those discourse that the higher you go in academia, 
the more isolated you become. Mm. You become all by yourself. And I'm thinking about um, this idea that you say that mental health, I don't know if you said mental health specifically is gendered or just health in itself. But I'm going to speak about mental health um, because of this episode. So um, just coming from an intersectional understanding of mental health. So yes, there is the gender aspect, but are there other aspects that actually influence whether one um, seeks help? So things like race, class, you know. So there's quite a number of predispositions, Mm. right? One of the things which is important in this is your willingness to seek help despite your race or gender. Mm. There are people who, in general, are open to talk about what's going on in life. But it's important also that this, to note that these people have a circle of friends. If not friends, they have a circle of family mm. that is around them. Mm. So wherever they are, they're never alone or they're never lonely. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's people that back out of it and because they're going through so much, they want to withdraw mm-hmm. and be by themselves and figure things out. So one of the two, right, you're more likely to seek help if you're crashing. Mm-hmm. If you, 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 you gen- your personality in general is that which allows you to speak to people. But sometimes the pressure in itself makes it impossible for you to tell people about what you can't get. So for instance, in academia, you're doing a PhD, for instance and you have passed masters the cum laude or anything and you seemingly do well right your peers have no knowledge of what you go through when you get a rejection letter Mm. right so for you to tell them you have to explain what it meant and how much it meant to you Mm -hmm. right so sometimes you could be around a circle of people that seemingly know you but have no idea what's going on mm-hmm. with you. Maybe now, pers- more than personality factors, maybe intersectionality, identity issues become important. So women are more likely to speak out than men. And when men are less likely to speak out, they use compensatory behaviors, right? So for instance, they're stressed out and they adopt drink, for mm-hmm. instance, or smoking substances. Mm-hmm. whatever that they use as compensatory behavior to fill in that void. So they want to hold the ship, but they're failing, so they find something else. Women also do the same. And I'm not speaking with gender specifics to say that there's a chance that if you're a man, you suffer from depression, mm-hmm. or you're a woman, you're mm-hmm. a disease. Chances are, or what we've known so far is that the depression or the stress cuts both ways in equal intensity. The stress is added on if you have other things in your life. So for instance, if you have family, like your own family, your kids or a husband or a wife or a partner or something. So the balance, finding a balance is an important aspect, but is finding the balance is the difficult thing. So for instance, you spend long hours in an office sitting on your desk looking at a computer screen. And by the time you go home, you still have things that you haven't figured out mm-hmm. that you still need to do. Then when you get home, so you sort of isolate yourself from the world so your reality isn't actually an actual reality it's a virtual reality where you're constantly oscillating between a thought a book an opinion a publication and your engagement with the public is usually also on an intellectual level you want to engage with people that would intellectually stimulate you so your engagements are conditioned you become in other words unreal Again, I'm going to go back to this because I think it's important. This idea that, um, say, for instance, in black communities, there is no such thing as depression, for instance. There is that. So part of the discourse around blackness is the fact that 
um, when we go back to, um, say, you know, going back to the township or going back to wherever it is that you come from, if it's a black community, then, you know, black communities are not as responsive in understanding mental illness. Is that true? Is it not? What does that mean? Again, in terms of intersectional understanding of mental health. See, it's blackness compounds the effect of depression because in many black communities, there's a denial of mental illness. Mm. So, and there's always an explanation for mental illness. So for instance, you are depressed and you can't articulate your depression. So people think there's something wrong with you or something happens to you. And if maybe you're schizophrenic, people think you've been bewitched or something. So the explanations will justify the actions, but the explanations would never be the correct explanations of why you're depressed. Mm. So when you get to speak back and say, you know what, actually, I need to take antidepressants to get better, people start thinking, hey, what is wrong with you? And they're asking you on a second level of wrong, because they've already thought there's something wrong with you, and you're trying to seek help for a condition, it's another wrong. So you're like, twice as wrong. So you like there's something wrong with you twice as much. Mm. But the interestingly with the I don't know, the dawn of democracy in education, people have moved different social classes. And not social classes in terms of money money or access. People have gotten to know about things that they yet thought were foreign to them. So what people thought maybe going to a psychologist was a white person's thing. Our education system has allowed us for people to understand that actually mental illness is a thing. And it's not, it's not totally out of bewitchment. It could be out of other factors, you know. And even though seeking help for psychological or psychiatric help in a black community is still very low, you start finding pockets of people that advocate for it. So for instance, Social media is like afloat with so many messages these days, but you also find groups like the South African Depression and Anxiety Group that keep feeding people with the correct information. So if you're going some, through something, find help. Lifeline also is trying to get through into the spaces. The challenge though is that even if we're to find as many black in, blacks in the academy, they still need to find an explanation of why they were depressed, or why certain things, why they have this anxiety, why they're panicking, why they can't do certain things, right? And because of our, maybe our blackness or our cultural traditions, we tend to find people that have reasons or explanations that soothe us, but that are not necessarily true. In looking for comfort, we find messages from people that console us, that not as truthful or not as beneficial in terms of mm. finding help. So you find out that even in a, an institution like VETS, the Black Academy, you wouldn't find as many of them seeking for mental mm. help. And then you wonder why it is so. It is so. But you also then you look at the institution's policy itself. There's no. There's this concept of adult personal responsibility that you are responsible for yourself, and because you're responsible for yourself. If you are sick, it's your responsibility to ask for leave from work so you can go sort yourself out. Then we ask, does the CCDU help? But then you realize that the CCDU is run by mostly by two psych qualified psychologists and interns, right? Mm. And then you start thinking, people start judging the quality of someone's skill based on their experience. Would they intentionally work there? So mm. some people are professors and go speak to an intern. So then you start looking at the mismatch of skill and need. So the skill is limited to provide the psychological support, 
but the need for the psychological support is is high and then there's that mismatch now so do we cater for the need or do we cater for the skill that's very interesting so how much research has been done in south africa because i'm seeing that um, a lot of research has been done in the uk around mental illness and the academy so in south africa is there anything so interestingly there's just one project they just started out in Cape Town now, the University of Cape Town, where they're doing a cross-country study on mental illness in the academy. I think it includes Zimbabwe, it includes Namibia, but so far there's no data, right? And because there's no data, can we then not, can we they say there's, there isn't mental illness? What do you mean there's no data? So for instance, we don't have, like for instance, data collected from the University about mental illness mm. in the academy. Right? There isn't data that has been collected. There isn't a specific research done on it. Mm. And then because of that, it's difficult for us to compound the, the amount of mental health problems in any institution or at an institutional level in academy in South Africa. Then we start asking questions, are we not doing ourselves a disservice of not finding out the extent of the problem? Mm. Or should we rely on studies done outside South Africa mm. to inform what could be a problem here? Mm. But then also we start thinking also of the amount of PhDs that have graduated across the universities over a period of time. These only recently have the numbers you know grown higher and higher. And then maybe it didn't come up then as a problem. Because the numbers of people that were involved in the academy or in the PhDs or doing master's degrees was very small. So it maybe on a on a population level wasn't something worth considering. Mm. But where we are now, where we've found there's testimonies from different people that write on different blogs on how they deal with depression and whatnot mm. during their academic years, maybe as professors, junior lecturers or junior professors or PhD students, then you start finding out that maybe it's something we should focus our energy on. Mm. I'm sure you familiarize yourself with a study in the UK that says, uh, in the Netherlands actually, one in three postgraduate PhD students will suffer from a psychiatric condition, mm. like depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. So if that study, which had a population of about 3,000 people, or slightly over 3,000 people, mm. uh, indicated that one in three then for a population like South Africa, for instance, in this university where we have about 38,000 students, the numbers are shockingly high if we interpolate those I mean, the, the statistics in mm. that data. And if you start thinking, if this could be happening in Netherlands, which is a highly advanced state, I mean, in terms of socioeconomic conditions and the access to healthcare, then in a country like South Africa with pigmented, uh, with also difficulties in ex Access, accessing healthcare, especially psychological services, then mm. the numbers can be higher. Then what have we done about it? Probably not much as we should have. And so I'm going to ask if universities are doing enough to support um, academics mm. in terms of mental health. That's an interesting question, but I don't think so. Mm. I don't think there is deliberate support for mental health. And I don't think it's an institutional problem. I just think that in general, mental health has been has not been afforded the right place in society unless something drastic happens. So for instance, if someone 
has been caught out in the university and can cut themselves up and then they get through a psychiatric evaluation and say actually this person is suffering from depression. Only then the interventions will come to address that specific problem. But are the interventions on a day day to day that would address mental health? Probably not. Mm. There isn't even other than the first year experience you had with for instance, there isn't anything else. Mm. So if you didn't know that if you were depressed or you were having problems, you would go to CCDU. If you didn't know that, like you, there's no support for you. Mm. If someone doesn't tell you that you could get support there, maybe what should happen is maybe within the university setting, improve on the advertisements, like send emails, like they still send emails to students on a daily about if you're going through distress, go to CCDU. Mm -hmm. And not necessarily focus on the careers part, but on the counseling unit. Mm -hmm. Because when they talk about careers and counseling unit, most people just start thinking, yeah, but I'm not looking for a job yet. You know, um, if then the message isn't packaged in a way that you're looking, we're here to offer you mental health, mental health support, then maybe it's not masked, it's not, it's not uh, quashed into a long sentence so that by the time you're trying to figure out what CCDU means, only you realize that oh, counseling is actually included. Mm -hmm. Maybe it should be a standalone unit, just like we have this yeah. clinic, the VIS clinic, mm. and down the matrix. You would know that there's a clinic. If there was a mental health institute, you would know that there is a counseling unit, which is, and considering that also the positioning of the CCDU on campus in itself, I, I think it causes problems as well mm. because it's not necessarily visible. Yeah. It's like somewhere on West Campus. And then that itself causes also us to ask questions. Is it deliberate to conceal mental illness in the academy? That's very interesting. So I'm going to go back to the issue of institutional culture and how universities actually create this environment where there is a lot of pressure to perform. Um, and I'm just wondering, um, how does one navigate um, you know, spaces like this university with the pressures, right? With all these pressures, I mean, where does an academic like go? Where, where, what's your first thing? Like, do you go to a public hospital? Do you go to a private one? Do you go to CCDU? Do you take meds? Do you not take meds? What are the first steps that you take as you realize that maybe something, you're not feeling quite, quite emotionally, mentally, healthy? The funny thing is that when people don't feel so well. Mm. They have a trusted circle of friends okay. that they consult with. Mm. And they're consulting to get advice on what to do next. So people always maybe take someone or call someone like, hey, I don't feel so good. And it is within that referral system that we need to improve on telling people exactly where you can find help. So if you get a call from someone that says, yo, I don't feel so good, and I, feel, and I think I need to speak to someone, I think it is then within our responsibility as a society to find out where can you get the next available help? And then CCDU is on campus, so it's accessible. But we also know that it's an 8 to 4 service. And because it's an 8 to 4 service, it's limited. Even if you were to go to campus health, it's also an 8 to 5 service. So within campus itself, the services are only limited to a daytime. Would you want to go to a clinic on a, during a daytime session and speak to someone about your problems? Or would you want to go after hours? It's personal preference, but if the service extended beyond 
after hours? Mm. Would it would it free up space for you to go? Because also think considering that you have this pressure to finish your assignments, whatever that is that you need to do during the day, would what would you make time for? Mm. Seeing a therapist or working on the academic, whatever that you need to work on. So because the services and the academic pressure juxtapose, it's then difficult to choose which one because going to the psychiatrist or the psychologist doesn't really help with your marks, mm. but you expect it to pass. So maybe what I would suggest is developing a circle of, mm-hmm. even a circle of friends where you do things beyond academic. You need to expand your scope into like just life in general so that you're not limited to maybe just reading to pass. And maybe not just trying so hard to get that distinction, but to have balance in your life. Do other things, like have a burger, go to the dig fields and run. Because if you expand on things that you do that enhance your lifestyle, you have opportunities to learn things that would probably become a resource for you when you're distressed. But because there's no urgent place to find help, like for instance, also, if you go to job urgent, unless it's an emergent situation, there is no psychologist available. There's not even a social worker available. They also work in eight to five. And then you start, you start thinking, so if you're feeling like blue on a Monday night, what, who do you find help from? So maybe mental health should be given that platform to have services available on a 24-hour basis. SADC has tried to do that. If you call the call center at any point or at any time, someone is like, is the answer? And when they talk through you through what you're going through, they will refer you mm. to the next place you can go. So they will refer you to a hospital. They refer you to Life Lifeline, for instance, mm. because Lifeline is a call center, but it also has therapists mm. within the institution. So you actually go there if you have to. But as far as mental availability of mental health services, then you start asking, do you have medical aid to go see a psychologist? Because... In the private sector, they have to charge something. In the public sector, well, you might have to wait in a long line. And you might even get an appointment for two, three months later. Mm. Would it help? Then we start thinking, have we not positioned ourselves in a place where the diagnosis of any mental conditions or any of the health conditions is done when it has progressed far beyond what we can mm. treat. And maybe because we have not paid attention to the early signs of maybe depression, which is severe stress, eating disorders and whatnot, then maybe we have already failed to look at what could help. Because if we teach in general about the early signs of mental distress, people are more likely to recognize. What are the early signs? So this is valid. For instance, like depression is... A diagnosis, a clinical diagnosis after you've presented quite a number of symptoms. Like for instance, you are severely stressed, mm-hmm. you panic, you you com- you panic about many things. Sometimes you are curled up in your bed and you don't want to go out. You don't want to see anyone. You can't even eat. Or when you eat, you, you get, you know. And you've completely withdrawn from society for a period up to six months. And you have sometimes thoughts that drive you to levels where you don't want to, but your thoughts are just like killing you in mm. in general. So they're just like putting you in a space where you can no longer function on a daily like mm. you used to. So for instance, some people then take up, pick up habits like 
they may not shower for days or if they do shower they may drink alcohol on consecutive days mm. when they should be doing something productive mm-hmm. and they no longer have that will to wake up in the morning to do certain things so if symptoms are varied depending on personal factors but they're easy to pick up if we cared for each other enough to know what's what's going on mm. with the other person but also considering that our society today hasn't given us an opportunity to actually care for the next person as we should then it's difficult for you to tell if someone has a problem unless they tell you it is difficult for you to also impose that you may need help to someone so we were disenfranchised in a way from advocating for you know seeking help but once we disenfranchised it's it doesn't actually dawn on us that maybe as individuals we actually need to proactive in this and i think um what you said about access so accessibility to you know services that will ensure that your mental health is actually at its peak says a lot about again this idea of intersectionality so if you are poor you know that could be a cause of stress right or if you're in an environment that is um, particularly oppressive towards you whether you're a woman or you're black or you're queer i mean what role what role does that play so i'm thinking about like things like fees must fall i mean what role like what kind of state mental state does one experience when you're constantly feeling like you are violated by the institution in itself or you're feeling like you know you're not welcome in a particular space or you're feeling like your identity is not quite welcome in that space i mean does does depression come in in those kind so, of situations depression like i said for is a clinical diagnosis mm-hmm. so no one has depression unless diagnosed if mm-hmm. it makes any sense so you have you are distressed you're stressed you mm-hmm. you have anxiety you're panicking you a combination of symptoms then a psychiatrist would then puts this cluster of disorders into a diagnosis called depression. Yes, you would feel distressed in the such an environment. And then if you're experiencing gender dysphoria, do you need to go to a therapist or a psychiatrist for instance. And then if it helps to get medication, then get medication that helps your condition. If you're panicking and you're stressing and if recreational activities help you you need to engage in. but because there's no one stop shop service for everything so if you went to campus health and you're like i don't feel i feel stressed out and i'd like to speak to someone campus health should not at the point to refer you to ccdu that are giving you an appointment for next week which will be rescheduled to the other week because you need help now and then is like I was saying earlier is the service and the need matching you'd find out that the service and the need does not match the service is much slower to respond than the need for the service then you start thinking so in the absence of services what do people so okay. when i was talking to you earlier about the gender health practice or the gender behaviors mm. certain genders behave differently when distressed and that that for instance if you're queer would you what would you do would you put yourself out or would you withdraw from society and feel like you're alone if you're an alcoholic let me use it loosely or if you drink alcohol a lot would you drink alcohol 
to find sort of a soothing thing, to soothe yourself. If you're religious, would you go to church to find that soothing? How then people respond to this may in some instances aggravate the circumstances or mental illness in itself. Because some institutions or some practices or some behaviors that we adopt are harmful to our mental health well-being. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if you were feeling distressed and you drink alcohol, there's a song, I think Kanye West, where he says, have you ever mixed tequila with bad emotions, someone having a bad night? You know, it's disaster. So our behaviors towards mental illness have a disastrous effect on our mental well-being. How do we then correct our behaviors? How are we that this behavior is detrimental? Is there services for us to find? Probably not. And in the absence of services, anything can anything. But a balanced lifestyle is likely to save you the bullet of mental illness. It makes any sense. Mm. What if you don't have a balanced lifestyle just simply because of where you come from? So maybe, um, so I come from a single parent household and my mother is all the way in KZN. I'm here in Johannesburg. Yes, I do have friends, but they've got their own lives and things like that. So how does balance come in when maybe your background in itself is not so-called balanced, whatever that means, actually? Finding balance is an interesting concept. Mm. Finding balance means you do more than one thing that helps you from distress. Okay. So for instance, if you were studying, and studying was all you had to do to qualify, mm. you need to add other things that release, stress release. So okay. for instance, if you can afford a massage, go for it. And if you can't? If you can't afford a massage, can you run? If you can't run, can you swim? Because physical activity has the potential of lifting your mind from the downstreams, no matter how temporary it is. So what we know about the mind is that if you fix it on a particular, it prevents your optimal functioning. So you're stuck. And if you're stuck, then you need something. Physical activity, for instance that gets you out of it. So for instance, is it advisable to be alone or to be with people? It's more, it's better if you're with people. Even if your conversations or the setting isn't necessarily to solve your problem, you're likely to encounter perceptions that may challenge your position. It's important to engage in debates with other people on matters that you may or may not know. In instances where you don't know stuff, you get to learn certain things. In instances where you know certain things, you get to share your opinions, right? So, it is always important to engage. But what about that person that can no longer function and they are curled up in bed and they just can't reach out to a friend or can't think about these activities that you're talking about? So, there is uh, a form at the police station Mm. that you as friends and you're concerned about someone's mental well-being you can go fill in so the police can come and take this person and commit them to a mental facility. That sounds very violent. I don't so, know if I want that. So, for instance... <laughs> what does so, that mean? So, for instance, if you are in a state where you've become a, a danger to yourself, you, you have engaged in self-destructing behaviors. Like, so for instance, you haven't gone out of bed for a week and you haven't spoken to anyone for a week, and maybe your place smells like filth, mm. and you just don't seem to be having it together, then we should, as a society, take responsibility and help 
and this committal to a mental facility is only temporary. Yes, it sounds like a complete violation, but then you start asking. Especially if cops are coming to get you from your house. Mm. So the thing is, the police are probably the only licensed state institution mm. that will ensure your safety. So the, remember, the police are meant to serve, to protect. Men to. Yeah, they are meant to. Yes, so is, it is their <laughs> function, then they'll come help you. So in this instance, they're coming to help. But also no one else has the judicial power to come and abduct you from your hospital. Mm -hmm. And when you get to this hospital or when the police come, they don't come alone. You are whoever has signed in the form mm -hmm. comes with and explains why this is happening. It might sound invasive, but in the end, it is to that person's good. And you have an opportunity when you get to this institution to commit to the program that they're giving to you mm. or to say this is not working for me, I need to leave. Because you're not bound to it. It's only a procedure that helps, that allows people around you to help. We're out of time, but uh, yeah, this is merely meant to just start up the conversation or just contribute to the discourses that are already happening around mental health. So is there anything that you would like to say in closing to encourage those who are experiencing mental illness? Uh, let's, let's just say seeing a shrink isn't a bad thing. Okay. If you go see a shrink, you're probably healthy. So my advice is if you had the worst day, mm. call a shrink. If you're having a mental breakdown, you know, you have one of those every once in a while. Or if you never have and you have it for the first time, call a shrink because they will save your life. Thank you very much. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asau.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Research, scheduling, editing, and production was done by me, Simba Rashe Wondem. Thank you.